Now we come to a very controversial subject on page 293, Calvin's view of the law of God. And as we look at this passage, I want you to ask yourself the question, was Calvin a theonomist? One time I heard a man lecture at Greenville Seminary at a conference they had and he said in his speech, that Calvin was not a theonomist. So as we're standing in the lunch line, I hadn't been talking to him yet. I came up and introduced myself to him. And the first thing I said to him was, I'll bet you $500 he was. So <laughs> let's see whether he is or not. Calvin's doctrine of biblical law. God identifies himself uh, the inexorableness and sufficiency of God's moral law in the Bible. God identifies himself as the lawgiver in the preface to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 21 and 2. Then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Calvin's two basic presuppositions about the moral law of God in the Bible are that it is inexorable and all sufficient. First of all, the inexorableness of God's law in the Bible. By inexorable, he meant that its authority is universal, unyielding, inflexible, non-negotiative, and absolute. By absolute authority, we mean perfect authority that is complete, pure, and unmixed with human opinion, not limited by exceptions, total, not dependent on anything else, not to be doubted or questioned, the ultimate basis for all morality and ethics. Its authority is inexorable for one reason. The origin of the written moral law in the Bible is God, not man. The above preface to the Decalogue identifies the lawgiver as God, Elohim, the creator of the universe, who is also Jehovah, the covenant Lord and Savior of his people. Therefore, biblical laws are moral absolutes for everyone everywhere who has God as his creator. And those who have him as their Lord and Savior in Christ are doubly accountable to its comprehensive authority. A paraphrase of Calvin's understanding is as follows. God, our creator, has the prerogative as father and Lord to demand of us whatever he will. Therefore, we owe him all honor, love, reverence, fear, and obedience. We have no right to follow the changing impulses of the human mind wherever it leads us. But since we are totally dependent upon his will, we ought to stand firm in that which is pleasing in him, knowing that righteousness or obedience to his revealed will in the Bible is pleasing to him. He hates all evil and all disobedience to him. Therefore, unless we would turn our backs on our creator in ingratitude, and justly incur his wrath, we must cherish righteousness all our life. He says, it is only when we prefer his will over our own that we render to him the reverence due him. Therefore, it follows that the only lawful worship of him is the observance of righteousness, holiness, and purity. We cannot use the excuse that as fallen creatures, we no longer have the ability to obey God's law. However, like bankrupt debtors, who are unable to pay their debts, we still are obligated to pay them in full. 
It is not fitting for us to measure, said Calvin, what God demands of us by our own abilities. For whatever we may have become, God remains what he always has been, a friend of righteousness and a foe of unrighteousness. Whatever God requires of us because he can require what is right, we must obey out of natural obligation as God's creatures. What we cannot do is our own fault and does not absolve us of complete obedience to God's revealed will in the Bible. Secondly, Calvin presupposed the sufficiency of God's law. When we speak of the sufficiency of God's law, we're saying it is a complete revelation of God's will for us. As the Westminster Confession of Faith states, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Proverbs 35 and 6 sets forth the sufficiency of God's moral law in the Bible for ethics when it says, Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words, lest He reprove you and you be proved a liar. This proverb is based on Deuteronomy 4.2. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Here's Calvin. The Lord, in giving the rule of perfect righteousness, has referred all its parts to his will, thereby showing that nothing is more acceptable to him than obedience. The more inclined the playfulness of the human mind is to dream up various rights with which to deserve will of him, the more diligently ought we to mark this fact. In all ages, this irreligious affectation of religion, because it is rooted in man's nature, has manifested itself and still manifests itself. For men always delight in contriving some way of acquiring righteousness apart from God's word. There is no doubt, he said, that the perfect teaching of righteousness that the Lord claims for the law has perpetual validity. Not content with it, however, we labor mightily to contrive and forge good works upon good works. The best remedy to cure that fault will be to fix this thought firmly in mind. Firmly in mind. The law has been divinely handed down to us to teach us perfect righteousness. Therefore, no other righteousness is taught than that which conforms to the requirements of God's will. In vain, therefore, do we attempt new forms of works to win the favor of God whose lawful worship consists in obedience alone. Rather, any zeal for good works that wanders outside God's law is an intolerable profanation of divine and true righteousness. The gospel makes unmistakably clear that salvation by obedience to God's laws is a total impossibility. And then he we quote Romans three nineteen through 22. So in all this discussion of the law of God, understand that Calvin emphasizes over and over that you cannot be saved or have your sins forgiven by obeying laws. In fact, look at some of his quotes on the bottom of 296. The law renders us inexcusable and drives us into despair. But in order that our guilt may arouse us to seek pardon, it behooves us briefly to know how by our instruction in the moral law, we are rendered more inexcusable. 
Therefore, if we look only upon the law, we can only be despondent, confused, and despairing in mind, since from it all of us are condemned and accursed. Next page. The threefold purpose of God's of biblical law, according to Calvin. First, the law drives a person to Christ. The first function of the moral law of God is explained in Galatians 3, 22 through 26. But the, scriptures has, the scripture has shut up all men under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Here's what Calvin says about how the law drives a person to Christ. While it shows God's righteousness, that is, the righteousness alone that is acceptable to God, the law warns, informs, convicts, and lastly condemns every man of his own unrighteousness. For man, blinded and drunk with self-love, must be compelled to know and to confess his own feebleness and impurity. If man is not clearly convinced of his own vanity, he's puffed up with insane confidence in his own mental powers and can never be induced to recognize their slenderness as long as he measures them by a measure of his own choice. But as soon as he begins to compare his powers with the difficulty of the law, he has something to diminish his bravado. Skip the paragraph. It remains to the law to arm God's wrath for the sinner's downfall. For of itself the law can only accuse, condemn, and destroy. Having been convicted and broken by the law of God, dismissing the stupid opinion of their own strength, sinners come to realize that they stand and are upheld by God's hand alone, that naked and empty-handed they flee to his mercy, repose entirely in it, hide deep within it, and seize upon it alone for righteousness and merit. For God's mercy is revealed in Christ to all who seek and wait upon it with true faith. In the precepts of the law, God is but the rewarder of perfect righteousness, which all of us lack, and conversely, the severe judge of evil deeds. But in Christ, his face shines, full of grace and gentleness, even upon us poor and unworthy sinners. So the first thing Calvin says the law does, it drives you to Christ. It shows you your sin, your misery, how evil you are before God, the danger of your predicament, and shows you there's absolutely no other way of dealing with your sin except the Lord Jesus Christ, and it drives you to him. Second function of the law. The law restrains sin in society. The second function of God's law is explained in 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Calvin says, the second function of the law is this, at least by fear of punishment, to restrain certain men who are untouched by any care for what is just and right, 
unless compelled by hearing the dire threats in the law. But they are restrained not because their inner mind is stirred or affected, but because being bridled, so to speak, they keep their hands from outward activity and hold inside the depravity that otherwise they would wantonly have indulged. Consequently, they're neither better nor, nor more righteous before God. Hindered by fright or shame, they dare neither execute what they have conceived in their minds nor openly breathe forth the rage of their lust. Still, they do not have hearts disposed to fear and obedience towards God. Indeed, the more they restrain themselves, the more strongly are they inflamed. They burn and boil within and are ready to do anything or burst forth anywhere, but for the fact that this dread of the law hinders them. Not only that, but so wickedly do they also hate the law itself and curse God the lawgiver, that if they could, they would most certainly abolish him. For they cannot bear him either when he commands them to do right, or when he takes vengeance on the despisers of his majesty. All who are still unregenerate feel, some more obscurely, some more openly, that they are not drawn to obey the law voluntarily, but impelled by a violent fear to do so against their will and despite their opposition to it. But this, uh, this constrained and forced righteousness is necessary for the public community of men for whose tranquility the Lord herein provided when he took care that everything be not tumultuously confounded. This would happen if everything were permitted to all men. So the second thing Calvin says is, is the state, the civil magistrate, must obey and enforce the law of God with all of its threats and with all of its punishments so as to restrain evil men from their criminal intentions. And then the third function of biblical law, Calvin says, is that the law is a perfect rule of righteousness in the Christian's life. The third function of God's law is explained in such texts as Ezekiel 36 and Romans 8. In Ezekiel 36, we read the prophecy of the accomplishments of Christ in the new covenant. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Romans 8, 1 through 4 tell us that purpose of our redemption in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law or power of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law or power of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law, which is obedience, might be fulfilled in us, not for us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Here's Calvin's comments on this third use of the law. The third and principal use, which pertains more closely to the proper purpose of the law, finds its place among believers in whose hearts the Spirit of God already lives and reigns. For even though they have the law written and engraved upon their hearts by the finger of God, that is, have been so moved and quickened through the directing of the Spirit that they long to obey God, they still profit by the law in two ways. 
Here is the best instrument for them to learn more thoroughly each day the nature of the Lord's will to which they aspire and to confirm them in the understanding of it. For no man has heretofore attained to such wisdom as to be unable from the daily instruction of the law to make fresh progress toward a purer knowledge of the divine will. Again, because we need not only teaching but also exhortation, the servant of God will also avail himself of this benefit of the law by frequent meditation upon it, to be aroused to obedience, be strengthened in it, and be drawn back from the slippery path of transgression. In this way, the saints must press on. For however eagerly they may, in accordance with the Spirit, strive towards God's righteousness, the listless flesh always so burdens them that they do not proceed with due readiness. The law is to the flesh like a whip to an idle and balky ass to arouse it to work. Even for a spiritual man, not yet free from the weight of the flesh, the law remains a constant sting that will not let him stand still. So then the Lord instructs by his law those who read his law to obey it, having instilled within them by his spirit the readiness to obey. Next, the abrogation of the law. Calvin speaks of the abrogation of God's law. To abrogate is to abolish or annul by legitimate authority. But he's very careful to distinguish in what sense the law is abrogated and in what sense it is not. And just as Calvin was no legalist, so he was no antinomian. He used abrogation with reference to the liberation in Christ of the believer from the law's condemnation. He wrote, Now the law has power to exhort believers. This is not a power to bind their consciences with a curse, but one to shake off their sluggishness by repeatedly urging them and to pinch them awake to their imperfection. Therefore, many persons wishing to express such liberation from the, that curse say that for believers, the moral law has been abrogated. Not that the law no longer enjoins believers to do what is right, but only that it is not for them what it formerly was. It may no longer condemn and destroy their consciences by frightening and confounding them. Paul teaches clearly enough such an abrogation of the law in Romans 7, 6. But to avoid stumbling on the same stone, let us accurately distinguish what in the law has been abrogated from what still remains in force. When the law testifies that he came not to abolish the law but to fulfill it, and that until heaven and earth pass away, not a jot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished, he sufficiently confirms that by his coming nothing is going to be taken away from the observance of the law, and justly. Inasmuch as he came rather to remedy transgressions of it. Therefore, through Christ, the teaching of the law remains inviolable, impregnable to assault or transgression in that neither can overturn it. By teaching, admonishing, reproving, and correcting, it forms us and prepares us for every good work. The law is abrogated to the extent that it no longer condemns us. What Paul says of the curse unquestionably applies not to the ordinance itself, but solely to its force to bind the conscience. The law not only teaches, but forthrightly enforces what it commands. 
If it be not obeyed, indeed, if one in any respect fail in his duty, the law unleashes the thunderbolt of its curse. And for this reason, the apostle says, all who are of the works of, of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not fulfill all things. He describes as under the works of the law those who do not ground their righteousness in remission of sins, through which we are released from the rigor of the law. He therefore teaches that we must be released from the bonds of the law unless we wish to perish miserably under them. But from what bonds? Calvin says the bonds of harsh and dangerous requirements which remit nothing of the extreme penalty of the law and suffer no transgression to go unpunished. To redeem us from the curse, I say, Christ was made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who hangs on a tree. So what Calvin is saying is the law is abrogated not in what it demands of us, but as an instrument of condemnation. As something that will cause you to perish if you disobey it. The apostle teaches us that Christ was made subject to the law, that he might redeem those under the law so that we might receive the adoption of sons. But what does this mean? Calvin says that we should not be borne down by unending bondage, which would agonize our consciences with the fear of death. Meanwhile, this always remains an unassailable fact. No part of the authority of the law is withdrawn without our having always to receive it with the same veneration and obedience. Then Calvin talks about the ceremonial laws. We'll not spend time there, that's obvious. Those are the various ceremonial laws that have reference to the sacrificial system and the tabernacle and the priesthood, all of which the Bible says were symbols that pointed to Christ. They were shadows so that when the reality that cast those shadows came, that is Christ, there was no need for the shadows anymore. So once the Lamb of God sat was sacrificed for the sins of the world on Calvary, there was no need for the sacrificial system. And once Christ came as our high priest and intercessor, there's no need for elders in the church to wear priestly garments as they wore in the tabernacle. And once Christ came and established his church on earth, the old literal tabernacle and temple were no longer in gear because they were simply symbols of Christ and of his church. So in that sense, Calvin would say that the ceremonial system, the sacrificial system and laws and rites and rituals pertaining to the tabernacle, the temple, and all that, was abrogated when the Lord Jesus Christ himself came. Uh, let me read Calvin because he, he's so, such a great reader, writer. Ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, which had as their purpose to teach by symbols the meaning of Christ's redemption of his people, says Calvin, have been abrogated not in effect but only in use. He's saying the underlying redemptive principles of the sacrificial system and ceremonial laws are still just as true as they ever were. We just don't use the laws anymore now that we have Christ. I mean, it's just as true as ever. You've got to have a sacrifice to get to God. But that sacrifice is now not of lambs and goats. It's of Christ. Christ, by his coming, has terminated them, but has not deprived them of anything of their sanctity. Rather, he has approved and honored it. Just as the ceremonies would have provided the people of the old covenant with an empty show if the power of Christ's death and resurrection had not been displayed therein, 
So if they had not ceased, we would be unable today to discern for what purpose they were established. Consequently, Paul, to prove their observance, not only superfluous, but also harmful, teaches that they are shadows whose substance exists for us in Christ. Thus we see that in their abolition, the truth shines forth better than if they, still far off and as if veiled, figured the Christ who has already plainly revealed himself. Then on page 305, he talks about uh, law and love and the relationship of, of, of the two. But let's go on to page 306. The law of God and the state, according to Calvin. The reformers of the 16th century believed that the purpose of the state is to obey and enforce both tables of the law. That is all the Ten Commandments. The civil government is to enforce all Ten Commandments and not just the last six. We see remnants of that in Georgia. You know the third commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain. It is still forbidden by law in the state of Georgia, public blasphemy. In fact, about 10 years ago, there was a man walking down the street in a little town in South Georgia, not knowing that the judge was walking by him, and the guy ripped off with a big oath. And the judge had him arrested. And instead of executing him like he should have, fined him several hundred dollars. The first table of the law, that is the first four commandments, protected the purity of public worship, called for the outlawing of idolatry, and upheld the sanctity of God's name and of the Sabbath. The second table of the law, that is the last six commandments, protected human life, family, property, liberty, reputation. John Calvin made it unmistakably clear in the last chapter of his Institutes of the Christian Religion, that the civil magistrate is to be the guardian of pure worship and the defender of the Christian faith, and that the civil magistrate should govern in the name of Jesus. Calvin did not believe in the religious neutrality or the secular nature of the state. Here's what Calvin said. I admit that it is good to show moderation and that not too much rigor is neither good nor useful because it is necessary to accommodate ceremonies to the simplicity of the people. But one must not let that which comes from Satan and the Antichrist, who for him was the Roman Catholic Church, be accepted under this principle. This is why Holy Writ, when praising those kings in the Old Testament who had attacked idolatry but failed to wipe it out altogether, notes it as a shame that nevertheless they had not cast down the small temples and places of deranged devotion. 1544, Calvin gave similar advice to the king of Poland. In this letter, Calvin says the king should not hesitate to wipe out idolatry in their land because God has set them on high for this purpose, 
of enlightening their people. Calvin further warns the Polish king that unless he calls his subjects away from the filthy dissipation of popery to the obedience of Christ, he shall incur serious blame before God. Can't you see the Mormon Romney saying something like that? In another letter to the same king, Calvin wrote, quote, If such concern for an outward form of worship was undertaken by this ancient Jewish king David, then how much more should not the spiritual worship of God absorb a Christian monarch in the present day? In the last chapter of the Institutes, which is on political issues, Calvin writes, And in some ways, Calvin wrote the whole Institutes in order to get to the last chapter. He saved the civil magistrate till last, not because he thought it was the least important. But everything was building up to that because remember what he was doing. He was addressing King Francis of of France who was persecuting the Christian uh, Protestants in France. And he was showing them how a true king should live. He was showing them what these people really believe. But you read his, read his letter to Francis at the beginning of the Institutes. And then this chapter on civil magistrate at the end. And you'll see that Calvin is not only trying to convince Francis these people aren't, aren't extremists as you say. He's also saying, Francis, here's how a true king governs. So here's Calvin. This civil government is designed... As long as we live in this world to cherish and support the external worship of God. To preserve the pure doctrine of religion. To defend the constitution of the church. To regulate our lives in a manner requisite for the society of men. To form our manners to civil justice. To promote our concord with each other. And to establish general peace and tranquility. There you have Calvin spelling out the functions of civil government. And he out-theonomizes many theonomists that I know. He says, here's what the civil government was designed for as long as we live in this world. To cherish and support the external or true worship of God. Thou shalt have No other gods before thee. To preserve the pure doctrine of religion. To outlaw all false religions like Islam. To defend the constitution of the church. It's to protect the church above all else. To regulate our lives in a manner requisite for the society of men. To form our manners to civil justice to promote our concord with each other, and to establish general peace and tranquility. He goes on. The civil magistrate's objects also are, in other words, he's saying that's not all. Don't get excited, there's more. The civil magistrate's objects also are that idolatry, sacrileges against the name of God, blasphemies against his truth and other offenses against religion, meaning Christianity, 
may not only appear and be disseminated among the people, that the public tranquility may not be disturbed, that every person may enjoy his property without molestation, that men may transact their business together without fraud or injustice, that integrity and modesty may be cultivated among them, in short, that there may be a public form of religion among Christians and that humanity may be maintained among men. You know why neither the Republicans nor the liberals will ever find a solution to uh, the immigration problem? Because none of them have the courage or intelligence to do what Calvin said and outlaw mosques, Buddhist temples, Hindus' temples, and all other forms of pagan religion. That's one good way to stop the immigration problem. When David, he says, exhorts kings and judges to kiss the Son of God, he does not command them to abdicate their authority and retire to private life, but to submit to Christ the power with which they are invested that he alone may have the preeminence over all. He calls upon civil magistrates to self-consciously serve Christ. He says, if the scripture did not teach that this office of civil magistrate extends to both tables of the law, we might learn it from heathen writers. For not one of them has treated of the office of magistrates of legislation and civil government without beginning with religion and divine worship. In other words, he's shaming them now. Christians may not start in their civil government with Christ and with a, a, a religion and worship, but all pagan religions do. And thus they have all confessed that no government can be happily constituted unless its first object be the promotion of piety and that all laws are preposterous which neglect the claims of God and merely provide for the interests of men. Therefore, as religion holds the first place among all the philosophers, and as this has always been regarded by the universal consent of all nations, Christian princes and magistrates ought to be ashamed of their indolence. If they do not make the worship, the honor of God, the object of their serious care. We have already shown that this duty is particularly enjoined upon them by God. For it is reasonable that they should employ their utmost efforts in asserting and defending the honor of him whose vice regents they are. Whose representatives they are. And by whose favor they govern. And the principal commendations given in the scriptures to the good kings are for having restored the worship of God when it had been corrupted or abolished. Or for having devoted their attention to religion, God's religion, that it might flourish in purity and safety under their reigns. There's Calvin's understanding. Of a civil magistrate. In the Institutes, Book 4, Chapter 20, Paragraph 14, Calvin says that, and everybody likes to quote this on, on all non theonomists, 
Calvin says that commonwealth should be ruled by the common laws of nations and not by the civil laws of the Mosaic legislation. His exact words are, There are some who deny that a commonwealth is duly framed which neglects the political system of Moses and is ruled by the common laws of nations. Let other men consider how perilous and seditious this notion is. It will be enough for me to have proved it false and foolish. (laughs) In other words, Calvin has said in so many words, there are some people who says you can't really have a free republic unless that civil government is framed according to the case laws and the political system of Moses. And that if it's ruled only, and that it can't be a free republic if it's ruled only by the common laws of nations. Then he says, I'm not one of those people. I'm not one of those people who do not think that you can have a free republic apart from the political system of Moses. I am not one of those people who thinks that you can't have a a free republic if the laws are based on the common laws of nations. Now, liberals and non-theonomists love that paragraph. And you can imagine why they do it. Because what it appears to say out of its context is the various case laws and civil laws of Moses are not necessary for a free republic. It appears to say that all you need to have a free republic are laws based upon, quote, the common laws of nations. Hence, you theonomists are attributing to Calvin something he doesn't believe. Now, where is that paragraph found? That paragraph is found in the very same chapter that we read these quotes from. That says that the responsibility of the state is to enforce uh, all Ten Commandments. That the responsibility of the civil magistrate is to preserve true religion, that is the religion of the Bible, the pure doctrine, preserve pure worship, defend the constitution of the church. It's found in the same chapter that says that the civil magistrate must oppose idolatry, just like the kings of the Old Testament opposed idolatry. And in that same chapter... You have this one paragraph that on the surface seems to contradict everything else Calvin said in the whole chapter. At least that's what people wanted to do. But let's see. This strong statement must be seen in the light of its context, both historically and in the Institutes. Why did Calvin say this? After having said the state is to obey and enforce both commandments of the law and outlaw false worship and everything. And burn and execute service. Because the case law of the Old Testament requires 
the death penalty for adultery. I mean, all you have to do to prove to someone that Calvin was a theonomist is say one word. You know what that one word is? Servetus. He didn't want Servetus burned to the stake, but he did believe he should be executed because that's the demand of Deuteronomy. We want to come to that a little later. We're going to give a lecture, I think, today on Calvin and Servetus. So why do he say this? First, Calvin is referring to the radical Anabaptists. Now, don't identify Anabaptists with Baptists. About the only connection is, is that they believe in rebaptizing those who were baptized by the Roman Catholic Church. The, ba- the Anabaptists were the radicals of the 16th century. They included revolutionaries, arsonists, atheists, anti-Trinitarians, Mennonites, uh, the ancestors, the Quakers, etc. They were a mixture of everything. So Calvin is referring to the radical Anabaptists who wanted to impose the literal civil laws of the Mosaic legislation on societies, even if it meant violence and authoritarian rule. In other words, that's what Calvin's addressing. These Anabaptists, one branch of them, were, oh, all of them were radical and extreme and violent. And some branches of them wanted to take all these Mosaic laws just as they stood without trying to interpret them for this different time and this different culture and simply force them upon cultures, whether people wanted them or not, and in doing that disrupt the entire culture. Even if you had to be an authoritarian and force a culture to believe these laws, don't build a, rail, uh, build a railing around your roof, whether anybody liked it or not, get power Force the laws on the people. That's what Calvin's reacting against. The concern of many Anabaptists was not the underlying equity or moral principle illustrated in the civil laws of Moses, but the imposing of the literal law themselves with little regard for the differences between their immediate historical and cultural context and the historical and cultural context of the 16th century. Calvin opposed such unwise strategies and applications of the Bible. As Gary North has written, Calvin did make statements against the legalistic, communistic Anabaptists that made him appear to be hostile to the Mosaic Law. In the 16th century, there were two kinds of bibliocrats. That is, who wanted biblical law to be the the, uh, source of all law for the state and for all of Christendom. Revolutionary bibliocrats and reformational bibliocrats. The reformers were the latter. The Anabaptists were the revolutionary bibliocrats. They maintained that political revolution was God's way of bringing about social change and that Christians should rebel against all governments that were not Christian or theocratic. Calvin stood strongly against such rebels. So then in his statement in Book 4, Chapter 2, 20, paragraph 14, Calvin is not criticizing the reformational bibliocrats who wanted to see God's law enthroned in society, but they believe that preaching and education are the only means to bring such a thing to pass. Second, Calvin believed that the civil magistrate had the God-given duty to obey and enforce both tables of the Decalogue. Here are Calvin's words. 
And thus all have confessed that no government can be happily established unless piety is the first concern. And that those laws are preposterous which neglect God's right and provide only for men. And we've already shown that these duties are especially enjoined upon them by God. And it is fitting that they would labor to protect and assert the honor of him whose representatives they are and by whose grace they govern. Also, holy kings are greatly praised in Scripture because they restored the, the uh, worship of God when it was corrupted or destroyed or took care of the religion that under them it might flourish pure and unblemished. This proves the folly of those, says Calvin, who would neglect the concern for God and would give attention only to rendering justice among men as if God appointed rulers in his name to decidedly earthly controversies but overlooked what was of far greater importance that he himself should be purely worshipped according to the prescription of his law. Third, the common laws of nations in European Christendom in the 16th century were generally based on biblical law. Proof of this is seen in King Alfred the Great's codification of the laws of the Anglo-Saxons much of which was taken from the Mosaic laws in the Pentateuch. Fourth, although Calvin tried to persuade the Genevan authorities not to burn Servetus at the stake for his capital crime of teaching and encouraging idolatry, he did believe that after a trial finding him guilty, Servetus should be executed, but by a less torturous method because Calvin believed in the continuing obligation of the state to enforce Leviticus 24.16 and Deuteronomy 13.1 through 11 and to treat idolatrous heresy as a capital crime. I'll read you one paragraph because we'll come back to this. God commands the false prophets to be put to death, this is Calvin, who pluck up the foundations of religion and are authors and leaders of rebellion. God might indeed do without the assistance of the sword in defending religion, but such is not his will. And what wonder if God should command magistrates to be the avengers of his glory when he neither wills nor allows that thefts, fornications, and drunkenness should be exempt from punishment. Capital punishment shall be decreed against adulterers, but shall the despisers of God be permitted with impunity to adulterate the doctrines of salvation and to draw away wretched souls from the faith? So much for Calvin not being a theonomist. Bottom of the next page. Fifth, Calvin's 200 plus sermons on the book of Deuteronomy published by Banner of Truth prove without doubt that he believed in the abiding obligation of the civil government to, abide the under, uh, to apply the underlying moral principles and the sanctions of the civil laws of the Mosaic legislation of the Old Testament. Sixth, although Calvin did rarely speak of natural law, he would not separate it from or make it prior to biblical law, which was the basis of his ethics. He said, it is a fact that the law of God, which we call the moral law, is nothing else than a testimony of natural law and of the conscience which God has engraved upon the minds of men. Next page, 313, we're finished, bottom of the page. And we'll come back to this in our, on Friday. The natural law theory was self-consciously introduced into Reformation thought through Melanchthon, Luther's friend and successor.
It held that laws could be deduced from nature by observation and the use of human reason apart from biblical revelation. It was on center stage in classical thought, that is, ancient Greek and Roman thought. Melanchthon, like the medieval scholastics, tried to synthesize classical thought with Christian thought. Martin Luther sometimes spoke of natural law or the law of nature in his separation of the two kingdoms of church and state. However, he was not consistent with that theory since he was so devoted to the Bible. He simply and uncritically adopted a viewpoint that had been in place throughout the Middle Ages. Aside from isolated utterances, Luther's method of reasoning in the practical concerns of national and social life was based throughout on the eternal principles of Christianity and the Bible. Even less does Calvin show himself friendly to natural law because he held too strongly to the fundamental Reformation convictions of the total depravity of the human race and the sufficiency of the biblical revelation. Calvin spoke of a natural knowledge of God implanted in every man's soul. But at the same time, he says that this knowledge is corrupted and stifled by the suppression of the truth and unrighteousness. Themes reflected of Paul's emphasis in Romans 1. Of the three passages in Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion that mention natural law, in the first two it affords merely a very faint foretaste of what is well-pleasing to God and serves only the purpose of preventing man from pleading before the judgment seat of God the excuse of ignorance of what God demands of human beings. In the third reference, in the last chapter of the Institutes, he deals with the issue Where should a state get its standard of legislation? His answer is that a state's legislation must be in full conformity to both tables of the Decalogue. Auguste Lang has written, In this sequence of thought, the incidental mention of natural law serves merely the purpose of strengthening the Calvinistic principle that for the state and for the law as well as for other things, Despite all accidental differences, still the ethical norm is to be found in the rightly understood revelation of the divine will in Scripture.